I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'd like to begin this podcast by recognizing the traditional owners of the land in which it is recorded. I pay respect to their elders past, present, and those emerging. If it's good for you to... No worries. Yeah, it's good. Good little setup you got. Yeah, it's um very portable, which is which is good. That's very good. I did. Uh, I was the very very first Joseph in the world. Wow. In literally, there, it was only it had only ever been performed at uh, a church. Right, okay. And uh, the very first production was in Australia. It was 1974, I think. Right. And Did you know uh, much about the musical before? Or you never no. been to that church production, maybe? No, no, no it was in England. The, the yeah, church production okay. was in England. Oh, okay. This was the first actual commercial production. Wow. It was in, uh, it was in Sydney and uh, it was uh, fabulous. I loved it. I played Joseph and uh, it was, I, met, I met a lot of really, really great Sydney people you know, actors and people who are kind of, you know, Arthur Dignam, people you wouldn't know, who know not many people would know, but kind of classic yeah. uh, stage people and I just loved it. Man. Yeah. I did you want to do it. another musical or anything? Um, I, did, um, I did Shout the Musical. Yep. And I played Lee Gordon in Shout the Musical, which I enjoyed. Um, that was a great character. I really enjoyed that yeah, character. Yeah. But I found... Uh, I, I, I both times I found the kind of six day a week, eight show a week thing very um, not exhausting. When you're younger, it certainly wasn't exhausting, mm-hmm. but uh, but no, just sort of mentally exhausting. Of course, yeah. Be, uh, just the idea of just uh, anything that you have to do week after week. Uh, I could never have a job, for example. Yeah, it is just to have to be in the same place day after day after day after day after day after day for me is is like a prison sentence yeah yeah um i never was able to adopt the more uh, artistic view of it i just saw it as a as a you know something that had to be you know, every week yeah you you were fighting to get to that one day off of Monday. How did it go getting into law after, you know, being in show business for so long and then... Uh, uh, well, I do. I started law in 1970, mm. 70 or 71, and uh, I did four, three years full-time and then was offered a record deal, so I went to Sydney and transferred to uh, UNSW and tried to do my last year while I was, um, you know, signed. And uh, I managed to get through one subject that year and dropped out and taxation law was the, the straw that broke the camel's back. I just went, taxation law, EMI records, um, not, for me. <laughs> not, not, not for me. It doesn't sound like the most exciting thing, especially after, you know, what you're experiencing at the time. Well, I hadn't experienced anything yet. Oh, that, was, that was at the very start of my career. But <clears throat> I came back in, um, so I didn't finish. 
and I came back in to Australia in '96 after 16 years in America, and uh, didn't know what to do with myself, and so thought, well, I'll just go back and and um, you know get get my law degree. Yeah, and I had to uh, be admitted uh, to to the to the course, and that was uh, more difficult than I imagined, and. Thank God, Adelaide Uni um, accepted me back, and so. But I had to start. You first got in. Yes, yeah. yeah, But they, they, I think they sort of fudged it for me, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, sure. (laughs) But they they allowed me to be uh, a student again. But I had to start again. Yeah. And uh, I didn't want to actually do it in Adelaide, so I did it as an Adelaide student, but at Monash. Right. Okay. And. uh, yeah, so I found my. Uh, we were living here, and uh, I'd catch the bus to to Monash, and I loved it. Yeah. <clears throat> the second time around, it was much more interesting than the first time around. The first time around, it was an interruption to partying and writing songs, and yeah, sure. and um, you know, having a hilarious life. Um, the second time, the actual law itself, I found quite interesting. Yeah. What what kept drawing you back to law? Um, well, in that case, it was really an un- just to finish something that I had started and never yeah. had, had left unfinished. That was part of it. And uh, and secondly, I thought I might need to be a lawyer to make a living for my family when I came back in 96. Yeah. But as it happens, when I was uh, at Monash was when I had, uh, with Jack Strom, had discovered Vanessa Amorosi and, and so I was doing demos with her and yeah. and uh, so suddenly I, I found myself once again in the situation of you know being deep into a law degree and having a music business interrupted yeah this time I decided to really just hang in yeah and so uh, you know I was going on the road with Vanessa and uh, and doing my law studies in the you know in the plane in the, in the hotel and and, uh, like a child star doing their being tutored. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're on the road. Uh oh, there's the beasts. <laughs> beautiful, hey. your beautiful three dogs, buddy. <laughs> enough. <laughs> and uh, but anyway, I just hung in and yeah. and got it. Yep. And then kind of uh, went off on the Vanessa ride, and so I. But at least I got my degree. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, then. Um, after uh, I was fired from Idol in two thousand, at the end of two thousand and seven, um, I took a year off to kind of recover from that that blow, and uh, just thought, well, you know, I've got my degree now. I probably should do my practical training and get admitted as a solicitor. Yeah, and uh, I did that. I did Leo Cousins for six months, which again I thoroughly enjoyed. It was partly in person, partly online. And uh, I enjoyed being with uh, people yeah. that I didn't know, and I enjoyed that process of, of learning again. And uh, then in the pro in the middle of that, I was at uh, uh, getting a, an iPhone from from my daughter lined up when you when it was a big deal to get an iPhone. Yeah. And uh, before everyone had one, bef- and 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 that was I guess when would that have been uh, two thousand and nine probably, yeah. and. Um, 
um, the guy in front of me was a barrister and, and we, he was with his son and we were in a line for an hour and a half on a cold winter July Melbourne morning yeah. and uh, we just talked and, and he said, you know, I said, you know, I'm going to be admitted as a solicitor and he said, why don't you be a barrister? And I thought, wow, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> It yeah. does because because I, you know, my problem with being a solicitor was you actually have to again you have to work in an office you got to work yeah, sure. for somebody you're employed or you do it on your own that's possible too, but just the idea of actually having to go in an office and do all that every day it just it just something that I couldn't cope with and 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 you know he explained to me that a barrister you know cannot uh, cannot be employed you are. A, a, a solo loan practitioner you can't even incorporate mm. and um, and the, and all of that appealed to me and and the idea that you do one case and and you see through it, it through to the end and then that case is done um, all of that made sense to me and uh, and also fighting for fighting for people was something that I had done as a manager yeah you know over the years I you know I'd become a manager and I'd become an organizer of other people yeah um, and uh, so that part of it, I liked as well, and uh, and so I and, and he he moved some mountains for me, and and I was fortunate enough to get into the readers course early. With the, the it's called the readers course when you're when you're learning to be a barrister, and sure, it's okay. and it's run by the by the bar, mm-hmm. and uh, it's taught by barristers and judges, and I I did that course and uh, got in, and I got you know passed and. Passed the the bar and uh, was admitted to practice as a barrister. Um, How did it feel being a barrister all of a sudden? As a you know, being the carnation kid and then <coughs> yeah. Australian Idol, and you know, you're in the public eye and are well, in the was, public eye. Well, I mean, you know, you it's it was uh, fabulous, really. It was really really fabulous. Um, I remember being in uh, court one at the magistrates court and uh, just sitting in there, you know, in uh, to learn. And yeah. just to see what was happening, and and the Piranha Task Force was was in there, and one of the guys from you know the the underbelly type world was in the dock, wow. and um, and I walked out, and and the police, this policeman came out to, well not policeman, detective came out to said, oh, I'm a detective, I'm from the Piranha Task Force, Mr. Holden, what what brings you here to this <laughs> to this particular case? <laughs> And uh, I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a junior barrister and I'm here there's to no learn. There's no record deal happening <laughs> no, here. No, 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 no. no, there's no drug deal, there's no record deal. No, I'm just here as a, as a very junior barrister. And uh, At that time I got cancer and, and uh, in, the, in, the, in the thyroid, which got into the neck. And um, so uh, it had, a, had a multiple surgeries and radiations and, and uh, my neck was blown up. And uh, I couldn't sing anymore, so it was really, really good timing in a sense because it made me leave the house, and it made me go to court, yeah. and it made me think about somebody else's problem, and I discovered that I could use my speaking voice, and not my singing voice. Yeah, and uh, so it was actually really, really good for me. It was really good for me in in a lot of ways, particularly. Uh, with the cancer situation yeah. taking taking my voice away, um, but uh, one one case I was in um, in the county court, and the county court you at that point uh, would wear wigs, and uh, I had my wig in my briefcase, and uh, we walked into court and I 
opened my briefcase and pulled my wig out and put it on my head and there was a biro stuck in it that I hadn't noticed. <laughs> and the judge said, Mr Holden, I think we'll dispense with wigs today. <laughs> it's like a bit of toilet paper on the shoe. Just yeah. <laughs> and as I, as, I, as I left, the other barrister said to me, Touchdown. <laughs> so it described a lot of key moments in your life really already that kind of had a, had a huge impact on you. I, I usually, before we we kind of dive right in, yes. but I usually start the podcast by asking uh, if you think nature or nurture has had the nature or nurture. biggest impact on you. Because you grew up in Adelaide. I did. What was your, what was your childhood like? Um, it was uh, unfortunately... Um, um, Bereft of any abuse, they were just ordinary loving people. Yeah. The bastards. <laughs> you didn't have the traditional showbiz I lifestyle. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't have any pain. I didn't have Barnsley's uh, rich vein of abuse. Yeah. Um, uh, they were just uh, ordinary people uh, in a in a large sense, and both uh, um, middle level workers. And um, I, I I had a incredibly safe upbringing and uh, really, I mean, my father never once hit me and uh, there were many, many occasions which really he ought to have. <laughs> you feel retrospective. You yeah. Yeah, yeah. If the situation's reserved, I would have yeah. given that kid a bloody great big <laughs> whack around the ear hole. But my father was uh, in no sense, uh, in no way abusive. And neither was my, and my mother was my champion, you know, because I would uh, I would piss people off a lot, and particularly teachers. Sure. And and mum mum would always stand up for me. And were you a uh, bit of a smart aleck at school? I was. Like? Yeah. I was. I, I I sat in the very very front seat, right in front of the teacher, so that everything had to go through me, and <laughs> really literally. Wow. Yeah. You know, and 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 I was not afraid to question or comment or whatever <laughs> was your was your sister like that no no not at all no no where do you think that came from um i really don't know i think it might have something to do with uh, i don't really know i don't know where that i don't know where that came from but but i was in a sense a uh, one of those kids that's you know the third child where they try really hard with the first they kind of try with the second <laughs> And with the third, it's kind of... Yeah. Hands off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do they call that? Free range. Free range. Oh, free I was range. most certainly a free range child. Yeah. What, what yeah. was it like growing up in Adelaide? Well, you know, I was just saying, I went to a, a cultural workshop uh, on Friday and we were, you know, which was to do with, because I'm involved in a, in a uh, project with First Nations people and... So in order to uh, – one of the things that we did uh, was to have the, the people in the team have a cultural awareness and cultural safety workshop. And, 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 and I had to – and, I, and I was, one of the comments that I made was, I can't believe that um, – how do I make Grady? What's his name? Paul Kelly. Paul Kelly. I can't believe – Paul Kelly and I are exactly the same age. We grew up in exactly the same city at exactly the same time, and yet for some reason he has and had, right from his earliest age, uh, a critical um, empathy to, the, to First Nations people and, and an awareness. And me down in the suburbs in 
in Brighton Summerton Park in the in the war service home. I had no connection to it at all. Wow. I had absolutely zero idea of anything First Nations, anything Aboriginal. Mm. I, I didn't have any connection to it. Because it wasn't taught at school? It well, it certainly taught wasn't no. taught at school. It wasn't taught in school, but it wasn't just, it just wasn't a part of my life in any yeah. way. And, and uh, it's, it's something that I've only come to deal with in my later life, and and I just wonder, you know, so it just really amazes me that the Paul Kellys of the world, so long ago, you know, were were so sort of emotionally or intellectually or whatever it is developed that they were sensitive to this in a way that I just wasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it just wasn't part of your upbringing. Just wasn't part of my yeah. upbringing. Wasn't part of my, my upbringing. That being said, in my primary school there was Linda Fong. There was uh, Hans from, I can't remember his last name, from, from the Netherlands. There was Nari Nafrin, who was a, uh, a, 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 a Pacific Island person. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was uh, Franz Shoshonik, who was from Austria, and it never occurred to me, and he was literally just from Austria. Right. And, and so that was in the in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. And so what was his parents' story? Ended up in Adelaide. That he ended up in Adelaide yeah. in, the, in, the, in the 50s yeah. from, from Nazi Germany, Austria, Germany. That would be a fascinating story. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, wish I, wish I, could, I wish I could go back and find Franz and, and, and because I really liked him. And, and uh, um, so we had a, a, we most certainly had a, a multicultural uh, primary school my high school was not so multicultural, but my primary school was, and uh, but no, no First Nations people. Yeah, wow. What mm. what were you like in in high school? Did you did you get an interest in music? Yes, very early I was on? always I was always interested in music. Yeah, even in no, primary school. No, every all always music music always. Uh, both my mother and my father were musicians, and yeah. and um, my father was a was a singer, and um, a really you know had a beautiful voice and loved to sing and mum was a pretty ordinary piano player but but could read music and wow. and and could play for dad to sing yep. and uh, so we had uh, my grandmother's piano and I never learnt unfortunately I wish I had but it was kind of like a computer to me I could I could figure out how to make a couple of notes go together and wow and and make a and make a sound that sounded harmonic to sing to but I never learnt Piano, which was uh, I wish I'd wish they'd forced me, but they probably realised that they wouldn't be able to, <laughs> even if they tried. Yeah. Did you encourage? Did they encourage you to get into music? Not at it? all. No. no, no, not at all. They were thrilled when I got admitted to law. That that was kind of logical to them. My sister was a teacher. My brother was uh, an architect, and I went to architectural school, and uh, and and so yeah, law law was kind of what made sense to them. The the music part of it, uh, for my father, when he was dying, um, he told me that he'd always wished he'd been a DJ. Right, okay. <laughs> you know? Wow. But he didn't have the courage. Sure. Because after in when you know, after the war he felt that it was his duty to do something, you know, a job. Right. And so he, he became a, an architect for the for the South Australian Housing Trust. And you know he grew to hate it, yeah, and yeah. and and really hated um, 
being in a bureaucracy and, yeah. and being in an office and and he was part of the uh, building of uh, you know Christie's Beach and and uh, Elizabeth where and all the places that Barnsley Barnsley's family and Swanee and all those guys grew up which ultimately became ghettos and and are now uh, places of uh, and have been for some time of dysfunction and um, uh, yeah, um, yeah they're, they're not happy places yeah they're not happy places whatever they tried to do which was you know great yeah um, they built suburbs for, for migrants yeah um, in the end they became ghettos and became a place a place of uh, uh, disenfranchisement in a way. Mm. When you kind of looked at your dad's experience with him, you know, wanting to be a DJ, even if you didn't well, know I didn't that know until that. later no, in life, no. do you think him, do, was there a sense of maybe him not loving his day-to-day work life that made you not really stray from... No. no, no, no. I just think that, the, that because we grew up in, in such a secure environment uh, and, and because we grew up at that one particular moment, um, which is really in the last few hundred years and possibly for the next few hundred years one of the most blessed moments and my generation are the boomer generation are um, uh, unusually lucky I mean I, I turned 18 the year that Gough Whitlam ended conscription right yeah okay <laughs> you know yeah, 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 yeah. really lucky yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so I got I got my timing exactly right I've never had to go to war both of my grandfathers went to war my father and mother went to war was it on your mind were you thinking that that might well I know I was accepted I was accepted to Duntroon at 16 mm. right the okay. Royal Military Training College I went there and I was all gung-ho because my English grandfather um was big on soldiers and war and all that kind of thing yeah and uh and I saw I thought of it in a quite of a, a fantastical way, and uh, it appealed to me. And then, and then they accepted me, and I went to Duntroon, and I went, oh, "This is all great." And at the same time, my brother was called up, and he went through enormous uh, um, efforts to avoid it. And I was, well, "Why does he want to avoid it?" And I, why would he not want to do this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it seems great. Why yeah. would he not want to go to Vietnam? Yeah, and then it sort of gradually occurred to me: oh, he doesn't want to go to Vietnam because he doesn't want to kill people. Sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or get killed. Thing, yeah, you yeah. know, <laughs> and it occurred to me that it wasn't toy soldiers; it was very real. And and in any case, the music in that at that point um, it had more of a priority. But but it is a, a sliding doors moment that I could easily have become a soldier and. Yeah, and and gone down that path. God knows what that would have led to. Who knows? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> when you when you first started in music, were you gigging? Were you writing your own music? Straight I was away? always writing. It was yeah. for me. It's for me. It's only ever been about writing. Yeah. Writing is the whole thing to me. And uh, um, is that why you produced a lot of people? And uh, no, I just I just well yes, in a sense, no, in in a very real sense, that's right. Because I discovered somewhere along the line that in order to get my songs recorded. I needed to be in control of the process, yep. and um, uh, so that—that's what led me to management, production, and all those sort of things. And and in fact, writing is has to be in some way involved in anything that I do. I mean, I'm not always doing that. Sometimes I do things that don't involve me writing, but but 
ultimately that's the joy for me. The joy for me is is the creating. Yeah. What, what about uh, – was your first TV appearance Adelaide Tonight? What was yes. The first, yeah. Yes. And what was the build-up for that like? Well, the build-up to that is that uh, uh, in Chopin Road, Summit and Park, where I grew up, we had uh, – uh, in the backyard, we had a little lane that, that the man behind us allowed us to have a piece of his land to have a little little lane that went through to the house that was Caddy Corner but not directly behind us because that's where my mate Mage – was and we were born in the same hospital a week apart wow. and we'd rush do go backwards and forwards to each other's houses all, all the time and his mother um pauline her major she ran um the telethon at channel nine yeah and um and she was the one who 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 brought it to my attention that you know that they were doing auditions and that i should go down and audition for ernie yeah and uh at that point i had a uh a CZ Czechoslovakian motorbike, and and I had a I didn't have a guitar case, so I put my uh, guitar in a backpack on my back and drove down to the city. Yeah, and uh, lined up just like the Idol kids did, and I sang uh, an original song, and I sang um, I think without a song, so I did a a, a classic kind of old school song yeah and i did one of my own songs and ernie loved me and and he took me on and uh i've i, I just love ernie so much i love every opportunity i can and i'm you know i love this opportunity to just to once again to just love that man mm. um he he saw me he put me on his show then when he went to melbourne he brought me to melbourne and and that was such a big deal yeah to be paid to you know get in a plane Big deal in those days, yeah. And fly to Sydney, Melbourne, and stay at uh, the I can't remember the name of the old hotel. It was, it was a motel hotel thing, and but it was so it seemed so exciting. Yeah, yeah, of course, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and fabulous. <laughs> and go into uh, going into Bendigo Street, Channel Nine, and which is you know the the old classic TV studio there, and and uh, and then he, you know he he invite he'd invite me back to his his little house that he had in in South Melbourne, and Glennis and him and 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 Jack Strom and a few of us would sit and have a drink with him after the show. It was just so exciting. So exciting, yeah. It was just so exciting. And uh, at the same time, I uh, auditioned for Showcase, which was uh, on Channel Nine as well. Uh, so I had two shows that I was doing at that time that took me from Adelaide to Melbourne. Yeah. And um, so Ernie, I just love him so much. I saw him, um, you know, while he was still reasonably cognizant in um, um, in at the Rest Point Casino in in Tassie in in Hobart. I was doing a charity thing in the bar there. We were going to thank some people who'd ra- who had helped us raise money for cancer, and and uh, I saw Glennis and Ernie walk in. I said, "Hey." Hey, Mark. I said, "Hey, I'm doing this thing at the, at the in the bar. Could you you want to come down at six or seven o'clock or whatever it was? Yeah, yeah, I'll come down." So he came down and uh, and I'm playing. I had a piano player and I was playing my guitar and we were just you know the people at the bar and we were thanking this thanking these people and pouring them a drink. And I said, "Come on, Ernie, come up to me." Yeah, okay. So Ernie sat next to me and I said, "What do you want to do? Oh, blue suede shoes, be flat, okay." okay. And, and and we'd start playing and he can't remember the words. He 
can't remember the melody. He was lost. It was heartbreaking. Yeah, of it course. It was really, really heartbreaking. So we kind of fudged it, and I got him back to his got him back to his seat. And Glennis, God bless, beautiful Glennis, and uh, Glennis realised, you know, that she she was very protective. She said, like, "We better go, Ernie. Let's go." And, I, and he said, "Ah, oh, the last thing I saw him, he said." Just want to have one more glass of champagne with Mark. <laughs> I love that. Right I to the end. That. Right <laughs> to the end. Right to the end. Right to the end. But then he went into the deep hell of of that horrible disease. And uh, yes, uh, but I just I, he gave me a gift that uh, I've never forgotten, and it's uh, it was so beautiful the gift that he gave me, and I've, I've always uh, been grateful for that, and I hope that I've can do that for some people along the way and have done that for some people along Absolutely. the way. Absolutely. Is, that, is yeah. that one of the reasons you wanted to do Australian Idol in the first place? Um, not essentially. No, no. Originally I wanted to do Australian Idol in the first place because I, I, I was in Germany with Vanessa and and they had there was a show on there that was the Idol brand. Yeah, right. And okay. it, it came out, I think it came out in England, uh, but it wasn't called Idol, but the, but the actual brand, it was called something else first. And and then they put it on in uh, in Germany, but they used the Idol brand, yep. and that was the first one. So I'd seen it, and I went, "Oh my god, that looks fantastic!" Yeah, yeah. And so when I was caught, I said, "Yeah, TV." Yeah. No, no, I love TV, man. Yeah. I'm a TV animal. Yeah, I just love playing with that red light. You know, the red light. Well, you were so much fun on that show. It was I just love it. Man. I it love just it. Electric. I just love it. I just love it when that red light's on. You own whatever happens, and yep. and because it's live, they can be pissed off with you afterwards. Yeah, uh, but they can't stop you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you loved those. Was it I four years it. in the end that you? Uh, I did two thousand three, uh, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. I did five years. Five years. But I was paid for seven. Right. Okay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Even better. Yes. They fired me, knowing that they owed me. They owed me two years of. of Really decent payments. What that's was how, that? That's how much they wanted to get rid of me. <laughs> what, what an honour! <laughs> wow. What, what What was that experience like? I mean, you spoke about it before. Being right, fired. Being being fired. Oh, it was. Uh, look, it was it was a surreal moment. I remember going into the meeting with Motti at Channel Ten and uh, um, and going in there just thinking it was a you know I, I regularly had meetings with Channel Ten yeah. and with all those people and uh and and as he was tell- saying it to me everything slowed down and it was like a, a bizarre scene and I, I was just in complete shock yeah and uh, within 24 hours they'd taken the car back <laughs> wow <laughs> the free car man yeah. come on <laughs> anything but that anything but that but uh, no it was uh, it was enormously painful because I loved that job and I loved doing it. I love singers. I love artists. I think uh, people who uh, are prepared to um, mortgage their life to their passion um, and and live that, I uh, just love them. Yeah, I just yeah. I love those people. The passion. You know? Well, well, just no, just that that you know, there's a there's you know, lots of people pay a big price for. For being artists, you know, not many people can turn it into uh, a mortgage paid off, or, or, or you know, a, a life at fifty-five and sixty-five. Yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a super difficult caper to, yeah. particularly in Australia, to negotiate. So I love all the the, the people who are prepared to uh, 
you know, cast themselves to the wind. Yeah. What was what was the reasoning for you being fired at that time? Uh, I was a pain in the ass. Uh, I, I really was a pain in the ass. I I I I I thought that they ought to have original songs. I fought for the guitars and pianos to come in. And and what I didn't know at the time was that Dicko was negotiating with them, having gone to Channel Seven and failed. <laughs> right. Okay. Sure. 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 <laughs> and and killed two so- shows. Yeah. He came on and killed Idol again. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but uh, no, no, they loved Dicko. They loved Dicko. Dicko talks their language. He parties with them in the right way. Yeah. Um, he knows how to get the lift home at the right time and have a conversation and a da da. Yep. And I'm not I'm not a people person. Sure. I'm I'm anxious with people. I'm an anxious person. Yeah. And and I prefer my own company and my wife. I'm happy with my wife and me and the dogs. Yeah. And you know the daughter uh, when she comes eventually every so often, and and a few friends. But other than that, I'm really not a people person. I'm a I'm a cave dweller. Yeah, you know, have you always been like that? Yes, which is why being a barrister appealed to me so much. Yeah, sure. Because it's you are a cave dweller. Yeah, and and you come out of your chambers uh, to go to court, and then you go back to your chambers, and and you hide in your chambers and and burrow into whatever it is you're working on, which is what I do. I, I, I work every single day. I love going to my office, which is at the front of the house here, and um, and just chipping away. Yeah, you know. So, you know, I wasn't a people person. I, the executive producer called last, from my time, finally called me last night. I've been calling him for about two years. Uh, the guy that fired, one of the guys that fired me. And uh, I don't know, I, I just annoyed the shit out of him for some reason. Right, okay. You know, I think he was, he was annoyed that I had the deal that I had. Right. <laughs> he, yeah, was, right. he was annoyed that I was making more money than him. Yeah. And um, you love tight TV. You were having a good time. You were yeah. Well, I, you know, uh, I yeah. It was uh, it was a strange thing, and they 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 were convinced that Dicko was the answer, and uh, that just bringing Dicko back would solve the problem. Right. And there and there really wasn't a problem. The problem, you know, it, it's it's you know, you look at something like uh, uh, Scotty Cam and Shelley Craft, and the, that crew that do uh, you know the block. They've been doing it for 16 years or yeah. something or other. Yeah. You know, the MasterChef dudes did it for like 15 years yeah. or something. You know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's, not, it's not... When you've got people that... You know, Marsha, Dicko and me worked brilliantly. Yeah. Yeah, it worked so well. It the did. originals. It did. Yeah. It did. And, and even Marsha, Marsha uh, Kyle and me worked well. Yeah. You know, we had one of our biggest years the year that it was just Marsha, Kyle and me. We, we, yeah. we had a big comeback year in 2006 where we got... Where we blitzed it again, yeah. And uh, but four doesn't work, so they're going to struggle with four. They've got four on the new version, and and the 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 guy that's the new executive producer, you know, spoke to me and he was very very respectful and and uh, kind. And and I didn't have the heart to tell him that, mate, four four's not going to work. You can't, yeah, you can't have four people as judges. Yeah, it's too just, many voices. Too many voices. It's too little time for each person. Then you've got to trade off who's going to. You know, it's you know, it's a problematic, it's a problematic uh, thing. And now they've now they've got Marsha on as well, so that's five. Yeah, wow. Um, cool. I mean, it's you know, they should just get rid of a couple of them and have Marsha. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Marsha would be great. Yeah, yeah. Marsha would be great. Marsha's a uh, Marsha's a, a, a quadruple threat. She's a. a 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A woman of colour who has deep knowledge, is uh, an elder, um, and, and is an accomplished mm. artist. I mean, she's perfect. Yeah, she's perfect. What happened after Australian Idol? What was the experience of leaving? You said that it took about a year to, to get over the blow of being fired from Australian Idol. I went to, it was really bizarre. I went back to, I took my wife back to America for her 50th birthday. And, Did you uh, meet in America? Yes. Yep. And uh, uh, we went to see my buddy, the Hoff, and the Hoff was doing America's Got Talent. So I found myself, once again, after all that time had passed, Sitting next to my old mate as the offsider again, or the offsider as he <laughs> likes to say, but with him on the thing, where yeah. I, whereas that had just been me. Like yeah. A year before, that was me in that studio on that table. Yeah. You know, you know. So it was a really surreal, bizarre experience to to be sitting next to David, uh, you know, off, you know, behind David, you know, again. Yeah. And uh, watching him do what I was doing, and uh, is that hard to watch? It was kind of, to yeah. be honest. To yeah. be honest, it was kind of hard to watch. Yeah, and not not, but no, look, just being around Dave was just fantastic. Of course, so it, was, yeah. it was great to be hanging with my buddy. But yeah, but it was hard because it was again. It was like oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's what. Then I came back and 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 I threw myself into reinventing myself and and going back and you know getting admitted to practice as a barrister. Yeah, was it was it hard? I guess when we were talking before about, you know, because the touchdown and everything, yes. and you being in the public eye for yes. so long, going to do this job, was there a change in, in gears for you? Was Absolutely. You, yeah. Completely, complete, complete change of gears. But it also, you know, I'd had uh, a life-threatening illness and, and I'd had, you know, major surgery. And so there, was, it was, there were all kinds of factors at play. Um, but, you know, the law was very good for many years for me because I had to learn... Um, I, I the bar the Victorian bar is fantastic. They they say uh, to your junior barristers if you, if you have questions, walk into anybody's any barrister's door, and they're duty bound to give you uh, some input. Right, and and that sort of sounds like a something that maybe doesn't happen, but I found that it did happen. Yeah, and um, and it, it, you know I may, I've made some very good friends there, some lifelong friends. And uh, I've been involved with some incredible uh, QCs or KCs now, and uh, that that in itself was uh, you know just fantastic to be yeah. to be running around as a 55, 60 year old, you know, sweating after yeah. these people when they're running around getting them things and doing things for them, and then calling at three in the morning. It's like bloody hell! Don't you people sleep? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I need my rest. Yeah. <laughs> How, how does it feel now? Like, are you working full time? No, I've, I've I've turned my mind back to uh, um, to music. Um, I'm 68, and uh, I uh, 12 years at the bar was enough. I I found myself starting to lose patience with judges and uh, and uh, people in the in the on that side of the 
of the profession and uh, you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. And when I once I found myself having a couple of outbursts at judges, I thought, you know, I think your time's up, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> this is not going to work yeah. for your client. You know, you can't tell them off. Does it, does it feel like you've kind of had a few different lives? I mean, you've done so much, so yes. many different things and worn a lot of hats producing, yes. being a really successful um, singer-songwriter. Yep. And then, you know, you've had Australian Idol and then yep. going back and... Yes, I have had many lives. Yeah. and, and uh, But I do want to get back to... I am back to... Creating again, and, and creating is the is the mo- the thing that I enjoy the most. But the problem with creating now is that that the music business, you know, what, that that I knew um, doesn't exist anymore. It's a new new music business, and it's one that that uh, I'm trying to come to grips with. But it's uh, really, 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 really difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> There used to be, in my time, there were one or two gatekeepers. Yep. And, you know, enough cocaine or a trip to Tahiti and, you know, everything would be right. <laughs> it sorted <laughs> itself out. It had sorted <laughs> itself out. But uh, that doesn't work anymore. Um, you know, it's all algorithms and and uh, the mystery of, uh, of all that. Um, but people are still having hits. It's still possible. Um, you know, people are having incredible hits. More and more Australian artists are having... Multi, multinational careers. Uh, so it's most certainly possible. But for me, the part that I really, really love is just the making of the music. I've only ever gotten into the other side of it because I've had to. Yeah. You know, because you have to. You know, if you make the record, you've got to do the rest of the work as well. Are you, are you writing music for other people? What are you doing? Um, I'm, I've, uh, I, I've been working with uh, this First Nations guy and... Uh, from a Gunditjmara man from uh, southwest Victoria, uh, Richard Franklin. Uh, he's mostly the writer in this, but we have um, we have collaborated on a few songs, and uh, just just putting together his record and and getting into his stories and understanding where he's coming from. All of it is the journey for me. Yeah, every part of it is the journey, and I love the journey. I just now we're at the next part. And uh, the next part is getting people to uh, hear it. And it's very difficult to get music heard nowadays, particularly from older people. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've got some standard questions I ask on the podcast. So what trait do you find uh, the most admirable in people? What, what, what are you drawn to in a person? What am I most drawn to? Um, really no. Um, what's attractive about humans? There's so many attractive things about humans. The you know looks can be attractive, a voice can be attractive, a spirit can be attractive. Um, I don't think there's anything any one any one thing. It's a combination of a um, lot of different things. No, I I mean I do. Uh, I'm, you know I I've, I've Keep finding attractive things about my wife as we get older, and and I'm easier with her, and she's easier with me. Uh, you know, we we allow ourselves to be each other and support each other at that level. Um, I love my daughter's um, hard work ethic. I love that about her because you know we didn't. We didn't really instill it in her, but we must have somewhere. I don't know how, but she's got this incredibly, incredible work ethic, mm. 
And um, I love that about her. That's what I love many things about her. Mm. But that one thing I just I'm so impressed by. I'm impressed. I watching her go through year twelve, and just how hard she worked. I was so slack, you know, at that time. Mm. My approach to study was that I paid attention in the class, and I took really good notes in class, and yeah. then I did no other thinking about it until the end of the year, and then I'd note my notes, and that's it. That's all yeah. I do. It's <laughs> a quick catch up. Yeah. I just note my notes, and that's yep. all I'd ever do. Yeah. But she had notes all over the wall, and 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 she just bared down in a way that that I I just couldn't believe. I don't know where it came from. I'm yeah. so impressed by that, and that she's applied all the way so far. She's 27, and she's still applying it every day. Did you encourage her to go into a particular industry or did no, you just kind of see No, I hoped, I hoped that she might be a musician because she, she can sing. She can sing really well. Mm. Um, but she, it just didn't move her. No, she wanted to be behind the camera. Yep. She wanted to be an organiser yeah. and uh, creative in that sense. And that's what she's doing and, and God bless her. Uh, what's something – what's your favourite thing about yourself? The, that I exist. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm very happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> if you could change something about yourself, what would you change? Um, if there was something I could change about myself, what would I change? Uh, Not. Nah, I don't think I'd change anything. Uh, yeah. I'm. I'm imperfect. Uh, I'm absolutely imperfect. I embarrass people. I embarrass my family. Um, but those who love me know that, you know, I am a bit of a dickhead on, on occasion and I do make an ass of myself. But, uh, no, I don't think I'd change anything. That's great. Uh, who influenced you the most? Who influenced me the most? can be career-wise or it could be in the family. Ah. Friendships. Um, who influenced me the most? I've had incredible uh, people in my life. I've had really wonderful people in my life. My grandmother, uh, still, I still dream about my grandmother. I can see, I see her as a shining light. She was one of those people who uh, just was intensely moral and not, uh, I don't know, she just, she just, she was so much more intelligent than my grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in her era, it wasn't able to express it, so she would express it in charity work and, yeah. and things like that. But but she had a, a moral authority that that everybody who came in her uh, radius could not help but be... Um, could feel, see. Uh, she was the first. And uh, after that... Um, uh, who else... Um, I, I had a, a, a friend that I met in um, at, at Showcase in 1974 who became my collaborator and and kind of a manager sort of advisor on and off called Peter Threlfall who was really uh, important in those first years. Then we, we went to, when I went to America, he followed me and we tried to be a writing team, but uh, it didn't work out and uh, we sort of fell apart. Um, Carl Jung, it was uh, was a big uh, um, changed my life. I, I met a woman at a at a theater in Los Angeles. Uh, I was watching a film about Carl Jung, and um, and uh, I met this woman um, who uh, who was sixty something or other, 
uh, and we when that we started talking and and uh, I used to meet her for uh, she had a little red uh, Mercedes and we'd talk about Jung and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff <laughs> and it was my first sort of uh, spiritual journey yeah sure and because uh, because uh, Methodist Church gave me no spiritual journey as of growing up. Uh, as of growing up, I, I really uh, rejected it uh, growing up. I rejected Christianity growing up. And uh, even though I just said my grandmother was highly spiritual in that sense and she was a devout Methodist, but, but I rejected it. And uh, in the end, the, the Jung, uh, I read all, every single Jung book from this woman, uh, you know, with our, our discussions and... Um, uh, so, so I meditated for a year. I did what Jung told me to do, which is I meditated for a year. I, I'm a weed smoker, so mm. I stopped smoking weed. I stopped drinking. Mm. Um, and uh, I wrote down my dreams every single day for a year. Wow. And, and that, when you do that, you, it, it, it not only... Um, uh, it, you, you, you keep the dreams... Because mostly we just shed them, we don't remember them. But but when you get in the habit of doing that, you can remember more of the dreams and more dreams because we you know have many 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 dreams every night. Uh, but writing them down was fantastic. I wish I still had them somewhere. And and then you'd look back and you'd see, you know, when you read back through the year, you could see certain themes constantly repeating themselves, mm. but from a different perspective. Like, yeah, like, sure. a, like a camera from the front of a stage as opposed to the back of a stage or whatever. And, and certain things became pretty apparent to me. And, uh, uh, and in the end, you, what Jung said was you took two chairs and, and uh, you sit in one chair and you ask the empty chair the question, then you go over to them, sit in the empty chair and you answer the question. And doing that led me to decide, because at that point I'd been dropped by my American label, mm-hmm. I'd had a failure in that moment and and um, I had uh, no longer had a record deal in Australia because I'd got out of my record deal in Australia to sign with Atlantic in yep. in, in America a, a sub label Atlantic called the Scotty Brothers and um, so I was on my own in America with nothing and that's when I put that year's effort in and uh, at the end of that year this song appeared in my head Really, literally. And uh, I had bought a little Tascam 8-track and I figured out how to um, put the chords down. I wrote this song and um, I just happened to meet these two dudes who were pitching songs to Barry Gordy, the founder of Motown, and uh, he played my little demo that I made myself and wrote the entire song myself, played all the parts, sang it, and he loved it. And he, uh, they recorded it on The Temptations. It went to number four. It's on the Motown Greatest Hits collection. It's called Lady Soul. And uh, that changed my life. Wow. It changed my life because suddenly I was a songwriter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you've done it all yourself. And I'd done it all myself. And, and literally I'd done it all myself. And that, so that, was, that changed my life in that, in that moment. And, and then I just went on this new career of of being behind the scenes and I gave up being an artist and, yeah. and, and started to follow that deeper spirit which is the writer and which, yeah. is, which is always what I was after really anyway because I was never a very good singer and uh, not to say I wasn't a very good singer but I, I didn't have the kind of a voice like a John Paul Young or a Glenn Shorrock 
you know, there are certain singers who have are what you'd call Vanessa, for example. I mean, Vanessa, Vanessa Amorosi will take us an ordinary song and make it great. Yeah, just with her voice. And you know, I didn't have that kind of voice. I, you know, if I if I took an ordinary song, it would be ordinary. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I was lucky because I got I got I was in the countdown era, so yep. so it wasn't about really so much just the record. It was about the look, and yep. and it was about going straight into every house in Australia twice a week, yeah. one performance. That's a moment that's never going to happen again. And um, so I was very lucky in that sense that that my um, my sort of look that I had developed at that moment, which was a complete artif- artifice, it was completely constructed. Right. That was the Peter Threlfall's construction. And um, uh, But it broke, it cut through. Yeah. And so that catapulted me at that moment. But at this moment in, in that was like 1984, and I got to go to Hawaii and visit my parents and Dad had just had uh, prostate cancer and had his balls cut off that's what they did in those days wow yeah they literally cut your balls off and i got to play him uh the temptations record before it came out and he loved black music he was a big black music fan yeah and uh, you know the house there would be ella fitzgerald records and yeah. and um you know uh, a lot of great great american singers and so it was great to, and then he died, and he didn't get to see it become a hit. But he heard the song, and that was a beautiful moment for me with my father. When you look back on your career, was that song what you're most proud of? Do you think it's certainly right up there? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. it is. It, it's it's uh, yeah, it, it it is. It was such a special moment mm. that that you know who could have imagined that the I want to make you my lady guy could. Write that, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was in the studio with him too, and that was uh, the that was a beautiful experience because the the blokes who were the producers were really generous with us young writers, and that they would invite us to the studio, which a lot of people don't do, but they'd allow us to just to be around, and, yeah, and and watch what was happening, and uh, you know the temps were uh, working up the the song and working out their harmonies, and they just said, hey, could you just sing the melody so we can work. Ah, come on. Yeah, of course. <laughs> come it's a on. hard yes. Come on. And that was amazing. And I was there uh, the, the day that uh, Ollie, uh, Ollie Alley Woodson um, sang Lady Soul. He did two passes from beginning to end. That was it. Then wow. he left. Then he left. He just came prime. in, did two. He'd been out in the, in the car doing something. <laughs> we, we don't know what we, well we kind of do if you know anything about the temptations history you know they had rotating singers the singer would would last a year make some money yeah then go on a tear and they be out of the band while they had to recover yeah and then another singer would come in that was the history of the temps and i was lucky i had ali ollie woodson who was just sublime man. yeah what a, what a vocalist uh when are you at your happiest when am I at my happiest? I'm at my happiest when I'm sitting at my desk and I'm listening to a mix. Yeah, wow. I just love it. I'll, I'll, I'll listen to a mix 30 times. I'll have it loud. I'll have it soft. Um, you, know, I'll, I, I'm, you know, I'll be dancing at 10 o'clock in the morning in my, in my pajamas yeah. listening to a mix. I just I, I love it. I love listening to every detail of it and the difference and... I, you know, it's just, to me, it's just sheer, pure, absolute, unadulterated joy. Yeah. Um, one other moment of, of great, 
pleasure. And I can still remember it was in, in my office. wasn't built at that point, but it was in the same place in the old house um, where I had my little uh, Korg keyboard and my little drum machine and, and my daughter was just a wee baby and, and I sat her on my lap and uh, I had uh, asked... I, I, another piece of total synchronicity and beautiful thing was that I went with my brother to uh, a... a, a, a uh, music store in Adelaide, uh, just terrible, I can't think of the name of it right now, it's dreadful, mm. it's a very famous one in Adelaide, and I said to the guy, because my brother's a musician as well, and I said to the guy, hey, do you know anyone who's a DJ? I'm, I'm looking for people to create tracks for me. And he put me on to this guy called James Ingram, and uh, I said, I want this, I gave him a track, I said, do this, but different. <laughs> do this for different yeah. great direction yeah, yeah. yeah and they did yeah and him and a guy called anthony hicks sent me the track back and um and then i sat with that track with my daughter on my lap and i wrote absolutely everybody wow with her sitting on my lap to her through her and um that was a sublime beautiful period that was yeah. a really 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 beautiful period to uh create that piece but then to have the opportunity with somebody like uh, Vanessa to to take it from being whatever it was to something, you know, international and, and that still moves people. You know, it's yeah. whenever she plays it, people still go off. Oh, it's an amazing song. It's so catchy <laughs> as well. Yeah. Everyone knows the song as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what's lovely is that I uh, uh, so a, a friend of mine just sent me a, 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 a text, a visual text of her grandchildren uh, singing along with it at, at a school event oh wow and yeah. i thought oh my god that's so beautiful yeah, yeah, yeah. that's fantastic <laughs> and it means so many different things to so many different yes it does well. it does yeah um when are you at your lowest um i get low i'm i suffer from anxiety i uh, i i do get depressed um when um when i got my cancer my sister had uh been five years clear from breast cancer and then she got uh, pancreatic cancer and uh and she was so prof- you know she had just been released she yeah five years clear she you know was about to have her 60s and and beautiful husband and you know yeah and have a beautiful life and bugger it she got she got um pancreatic and uh and mine seemed so my cancer seemed so uh well, they call it the champagne of cancers. In my case, it did get out into my neck. Mm. Um, it wasn't as, as easy as some people, but but I just it, I just got super low. I yeah. just I just had a um, a physical feeling, and it was just uh, it was a terrible feeling, and uh, that was that was really uh, the physically worst I felt in a in a depressed mode. Yeah. And um, fortunately, I got a really good psychiatrist from the from the um, from St Vincent's, uh, the oncology department, uh, hooked me up with uh, a really really great psychiatrist, a woman who I won't say her name, but I, she's kind of the village witch to me. I mean, in the best possible way. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. she'd create the potions and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and diagnose your mental. But she really helped me, mm. and uh, and I went on Cymbalta and. Uh, and, and I'm still on Cymbalta. I, I still use it. It's it's you know many years later now, but I still I still use it. And uh, so I, I do get 
I do get bouts of, of physical depression, mm-hmm. and uh, but less so nowadays. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot you could be depressed about, but really, I love uh, I love life and I love what I'm doing, and yeah. and I'm very blessed. So I'm less so now, but I still suffer from anxiety, and yeah. and that's just a natural thing for me. Of course, um, who do you choose to surround yourself with? What sort, what kind of people, and has that changed over time? Who do I change? Um, well, we have a kind of a very tight little circle of of, of people, and uh, I, I've I've my wife, my wife and I have been in this. Uh, look, we've been beating around the house since about well, we we met in like eighty two, and um, I was making a record in England, and uh, producing a record in England, and uh, I invited her over there. And when she was there, I said, "Be my partner in love and life. Don't go back." And uh, from then on, she didn't go back. She just, she had a great job with a magazine yeah. called Details, which was a very cool, groovy magazine. And I was ridiculous of me to say that, <laughs> but she never did. And we've basically been bouncing around the, the, the same four walls for forty years. So, and and she's a um, Anna's a. Um, a dog person. She's a Cherokee. Her grandmother was a full blood Cherokee. Um, she's a the, the Cherokees uh, dog uh, totem is a dog. So we're five dogs deep, and, yep. and I've never been a dog person. All right, but okay. I love every single dog that she's brought into yeah. the house. <laughs> I end up falling in love with them. Yeah, and uh, so she's a uh, different entirely than than anyone in my. Australian life um, she has a whole different way of seeing the world and uh, she has she works on different time frame than me which can sometimes you know when we were younger be very annoying and (laughs) and uh, she just has a whole different view of the world that uh, you know for example she'll when she goes to her mother's grave she lies on the grave right face, face down on the grave wow now my Methodist grandmother would not understand no. that <laughs> <laughs> what what drives you now when you get up every day and do you still have great ambitions i do uh, i do have great ambitions i'm i have uh, my ambition at the moment is is really full on at the moment i'm i'm working on this record with richard franklin which i'm loving um i'm really ambitious for that record i i can see it him being um, a real spokesman around for around the world, he's a his stories are incredible. I love, I just love everything about his story, and and it's meaningful to me because I met him because of my other passion, which is that I've I've been writing a book for about the last three or four years about uh, my family had a, a circus in the in the nineteenth century, the Holdens. And it was called the Holden Brothers Travelling Circus, which I've been dreaming about now for about thirty years. Yeah, and uh, uh, which which got realised by Bobo in, a, in one moment and Dancing with the Stars, and in other ways I've been expressing. Yeah, I've been dealing with that circus story, but as I got to know it more and got to know who my uh, Actual, I'd never knew the stories other than I, the furthest I went back was my grandfather. But, when, but 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 through this process, I've gone all the way back to the first guy that came here, uh, and he came to the Ballerine 
a place called Indented Head um, down on the Bellarine Peninsula down near Geelong there. And it turns out he was one of the very first dispossessors of the Watharong, the local wow, okay. the, the local people. Yeah. And that was something I never knew anything about. Yeah. And and uh, so that story just ke- when it just keeps on taking me places that I can't imagine. So I'm, in writing this story, I, and writing about a circus travelling through Victoria in the 19th century, how could I not... How could I just not have an indigenous element to that? Mm, yeah. how, could, how could I have this circus travelling through this country victoria in the 19th century where there were massacre after massacre after massacre mm. of which and, and 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 my own and the people the the not the the circus man but his father yeah was was the one that, that was the first dispossessor and his sons wow. how, how could i not tell that story so yeah. that's what drove me into that story and uh, i found a uh, the the archives gave me his inquest. Mm-hmm. He was he, the inquest of this guy Samuel Holden, and he was he, he the inquest was to find out whether his sons had killed him. Mm. I mean, wow, that's, yeah, it's amazing, man. You're reading this stuff from the, from 1869, and mm. you're going, "Oh my god, this is my family! Holy shit! <laughs> How did I not know any of yeah. this? How did I not know any of this?" So you're writing all of this down, and you're no, I'm I'm, I'm fictionalizing it, and that's what led me to. Uh, that's what led me to uh, Richard, uh, a mutual friend of ours, a guy called Michael Reimer, who's the director. You know, he 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 read one of the iterations of this, and he said, "No, you've got to go down and 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 meet his friend, my friend now, Richard Franklin." And uh, Richard's Richard's a Gunditjmara man, and and of course the the circus travelled all through that area at that time. And, wow. And and uh, so uh, and Richard gave me uh, a book by a guy called James Dawson, which which was printed in I think the eighteen in eighteen eighty, but was written in the eighteen sixties, eighteen seventy, which is exactly the time I'm writing about. Yeah. And what it was was a this guy was a dispossessor, and his daughter bothered to learn the local languages, so she was able to talk to the wow. to the various tribes in their own language, and so she got the stories from the people in the eighteen sixties. Wow. So these some of these people were had been alive before first settlement. So she was able to document their stories. So I've incorporated those stories in my story. And um, so that's that's um that that gets me up every single day. Wow. It's such a joyful experience to and and it's fraught because, you know, I'm I'm not gonna get any um, uh, no one's gonna appreciate me writing a, a story that includes a First Nation story. They're all gonna be pissy about it and I, I would love to um you know I've, I've asked Richard multiple times because he's read parts of it and he yep. gave, he's the one who gave me the James Dawson book yeah. and you know I keep saying to him come on man you know write this song with me yeah yeah write this song with me but you know it's uh, there's all sorts of cultural issues and and uh, and, and I, I'm going to do my very best to respect that because I do want to I'm using language in it yeah um and uh I've I went down to. Uh, I had this letter from 1870 from John Holden that said that the the Watharong were gone, and and, and that's one of the. I asked my cousin. I said, "What does that mean?" I didn't even know what it meant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he, she, she said, uh, "You've got to go down. There's a the Watharong going to go down there and meet those people." So wow. I did, and I met a guy called Uncle Dave Tournier, and Uncle Dave Tournier told me the story of the kill parties, and he told he told me the story, wow. and uh, and I've showed it. 
showed the story to his son, Uncle Dave's unfortunately gone. Um, but I, uh, and uh, you know, to, to seek permission from his son first to tell his father's story in this way, and and he's given me permission. But but he said too, and and I'm going to respect this. You know, you've got to get somebody to work with you on the language, and and I will. But it's yeah. that's that that's uh, something that's um, very tricky, and and you know, getting the right people, and they they exist. I'm I'm. I, I will find them to get the language right because I do want to include language in it, and um, but that's that's just my whole being, you know. Wow. That's 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 that feels like my life's work to uh, really to realize that story and just even sitting down every day writing that. It's such a joy just yeah. to drift into that world and 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 to allow myself to imagine that world as much as I can. I mean, as much as anyone can. But uh, so that's uh, it. Really drives me. I love it. Um, whether or not it ever gets sees the light of day is almost irrelevant to me. It's just. But, but but my daughter will get it. Yeah. And um, and you know it'll be part of our family story. And um, you know uh, it's uh, gets. I, it's cheer joy. It's great. Yeah. It's creation. I've got one more question. Yeah. If you could pinpoint a moment in your life that you think had the greatest influence or impact on you, what would that be? Um, well, Lady Soul, really. That's that's the yeah. one. That that was a pivotal moment. It was um, 1983, 84 was when it was a hit, but but uh, 82, 83, 82 was when when I was dropped by the label. So 83, when I went down that 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 dreaming path that I went on, that dreaming path was was absolutely changed my whole life and it gave me confidence in myself mm-hmm. and it and it gave me the confidence that that magic exists and that there is something in the spirit that's 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 we can't put our finger on but yeah. but if you but it exists so the, so believing in magic it helped me believe in magic and it helped me believe in myself and um I think I've used that fuel for a long time yeah mark holden thank you so much for joining me on the podcast god bless you sam Thank you for listening to Nature or Nurture for this week. My name is Sammy Peterson and you can follow me, SamPeterson91 on Instagram. I also have a comedy podcast called Confessions. You can find that. The handles are confessions the podcast on instagram tiktok and facebook you can also just search it on your regular podcast apps please do rate this podcast Uh, i would love that it helps get the podcast out there to so many people thank you to the wonderful michelle laurie and matthew tankard they're they're great producers and i couldn't do this without them please do share this podcast around i'd love to get it out there to as many people as possible so please do share it with a friend and tell the person that you just heard on this podcast that you've really enjoyed hearing their chat thank you so much hope you have a good week and i will talk to you very very soon goodbye Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 